Well, thank you, Pam, and uh, hello, everybody around the world. Once again, we have people on from all the continents and quite a few countries, so uh, we're excited to uh, to talk to you today. I have a lot of, to cover today, have two guests that we'll introduce in a moment, but I want to get to the hot topics right now. And uh, U.S. labor shortage continues here in the theme park industry, and uh, it's creating situations that we've never seen before shortages of unprecedented uh, of labor numbers at parks across the United States, both the uh, large and small parks. This past week, Universal Studios announced it's starting to pay. Its starting pay would increase to $15 per hour, and it's calling it the largest single wage increase ever made by the theme park. Universal becomes the first major attraction in Central Florida to pay $15 an hour to new workers. And these pay hikes began on June 27th for more than 18,000 workers. Those that already make more than $15 could uh, also see an increase. Universal is right now trying to add 2,000 uh, personnel to their workforce. Ohio Cedar Point Amusement Park also made headlines this week when they announced that their starting pay is $20 per hour to attract more employees. The worker shortages have forced the park to reduce the number of days it's opening uh, during the weekdays in June this month. So uh, we'll see how long that continues. Here in Cincinnati at Kings Island, uh, Cincinnati, ju they just announced that uh, they're going to be cutting their hours uh, during the weeks of operation in the short term uh, because of the labor shortage. Our good friend Denise Bexon up at Maurice Pier, who was a previous guest on the podcast, she's told us that they're now offering $15 per hour. They're trying to hire their uh, 1,500 employees, and at this point in time, they're only at 850, basically half of what they need. Six Flags Parks are also advertising for job openings with higher pay rates, uh, up to $15 per hour, and in some cases a little bit more, along with uh, a flexible schedule, which entices employees to work as little or as much as they want, so flex schedules. Over at Kennywood in uh, Pennsylvania, they're offering $14 an hour, up from nine last year. In addition, new hires receive se season passes for themselves and three family members, a bonus worth about $300 plus. So uh, they won't have to buy their own uniforms this year either. So parks are really taking steps to, uh, to help offset the labor shortage any way they can. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, uh, going into the summer, despite the labor issues, many parks reopened with uh, their doors for this uh, past Memorial Day, and they had record crowds uh, coming to the parks, even with limited capacity. So that's a great sign for the industry, and we're happy to see that. And we believe that certainly is uh, going to continue. Most parks in the U.S. have now uh, reduced or eliminated their mask mandates. And here in the uh, state of Ohio, the governor has lifted all of the uh, restrictions that we've had on COVID, uh, including masks and everything that the CDC had out there. So another big step in the right uh, right direction. Uh we know that uh, people are beginning to venture out again, not only to theme parks, but to concerts and to movies, and uh, again, that works well for us. Memorial Day weekend also showed that air travel still rebounding on the first day of the four-day weekend. Uh, the TSA screened more than 1.9 million passengers, a number they hadn't seen since March 20. Over in uh, Spain at Magica, uh, Isla Magica, they just reopened a Saturday for their first day, and Universal Studios over in Japan was set to open uh, this weekend as well. Other impacts to the industry uh, in a rare turn of events, uh, uh, we have seen today, announced yesterday, there was a, an attack against the world's largest meatpacking company, which uh, has disrupted meat production in North America and Australia. Uh, the likely act, uh, attackers are uh, said to be a criminal organization out of Russia. If the shortage of the meat continues, uh, we could see higher meat prices across the board, and it could impact the industry we're hearing already for our, believe it or not, 
beloved hot dogs and hamburgers that we sell. Uh, this follows the, the last month, the Colonial Pipeline uh, attack that they, they hacked into and drove gasoline and oil prices up. So it appears that uh, there's a never-ending list of unforeseen issues that we're going to be dealing with, and it's just something that we have to, uh, have to work with. Uh, but we are back, and uh, people are coming, and that's great news. They missed us. We missed them, and uh, we're, happy that, uh, we're happy that we're back on track. Uh, today, I've got two great uh, people joining me today uh, on the podcast, Tim O'Brien and Jim Futrell. Uh, we'll start with Tim. Tim's an award-winning uh, photojournalist who's chronicled the outdoor amusement industry and tourism industry for nearly five decades. Uh, he's reported on amusement parks, fairs, carnivals, circuses, sideshows, and all types of roadside attractions. He served as senior editor at Amusement Business Magazine, which we all read for decades for about 18 years, and spent 10 years as a writer and publications executive for the Ripley's Believe It or Not organization. Tim's had more than 6,000 articles and more than 3,000 photos published over the years, and has published at this point in time 18 books. Tim is the only journalist to be inducted into IAPA's Hall of Fame. And uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, Tim's book, his newest book, is Tim O'Brien's Roadsides Pick and Picks, The Huge, The High, The Half Buried. Uh, it's a collection of his roadside photos and available on Amazon, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I hope everybody will pick it up. Our joining guest is... Jim Futrell. Jim has over 40 years documented, uh, for over 40 years, has documented the amusement industry and has been historian of Napa since 1984. He's also, he's also offered, uh, authored over 70 articles for industry trade publications, along with dozens for uh, the Napa Chronicle and uh, the Industry History Magazine. Jim's first book, An Amusement Park Directory, was re released in 1990 and has been followed by seven additional books on the industry. He's been quoted uh, more than 150 times in publications and been uh, on national uh, television uh, more than 10 times. Jim is involved with IAPA, serving on the Hall of Fame Committee and a recipient of their Outstanding Service Award. He also heads up IAPA's Oral History Project and compiled their official centennial history documentation, which we're going to hear about in a little bit. Jim has visited nearly 500 amusement parks and ridden more than 700 uh, roller coasters around. So, Jim and Tim, welcome. Please join me if you would. Uh, there's Tim. <laughs> there they Good are. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Can you hear me, guys? <laughs> Yep, I can. Good, great. Tim, you're obviously on the beach, uh, sitting there having a pina colada at this time of the morning. <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that the wind's blowing you, obviously, in the back, and my hair hasn't moved a bit? <laughs> that's because you washed it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Hey. And Jim, you're you're working, so it's yeah. that's about normal. We've got yeah. one guy on the beach and one guy working, so... Well, well, this is my archive room, so it's my happy place. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, hi, guys, and good morning, and uh, welcome uh, to the I'm for Fun podcast. Really glad to have both of you here. Uh, you guys have done an amazing job of chronicling and, uh, and uh, writing about our industry for uh, literally decades. I guess if you put you two together, you're over 90 years and probably getting close to 100 years of uh, of of uh, being historians and and storytellers about our industry. Um, you know, our our industry. When we are talking about it here at ITPS, we talk to our clients and we tell them, you know, this isn't a new industry. It went back to the 1600s. And uh, Jim is a as a as an industry historian. Uh, Maybe you could give us just a couple of minutes of kind of that move forward from 
the European pleasure parks to what we've done in America and then how it's spread. And then, Tim, I'm going to have you join in. Okay, yeah, like you said, Dennis, this uh, is not a new industry. It is over 500 years old. It's, um, I think people have always had that desire to have an escape and have fun and unwind. And it did start in Europe with the uh, European Pleasure Gardens. You still have a couple of those still in operation, Bakken outside of uh, Copenhagen and yeah. Rotter in Vienna. Those both date back to that era. And that concept in the early 1800s began being exported to the United States. There were very primitive versions of those European Pleasure Gardens here before the Civil War. Uh, after the Civil War, you started seeing, you know, a very uh, industrialized, urban, urbanized country being formed, and um, a transportation infrastructure was being built. And you saw in those that you know, the late 1800s, a lot of transportation companies opening pleasure resorts as a means to generate traffic. You know, we talk about trolley parks all the time. It wasn't just trolley companies; a lot of steamboat companies, uh, Coney Island in Cincinnati, um, a lot of railroads. Um, such as you know, Idlewild Park that was formed by a railroad. Um, and the transportation industry really dominated uh, the amusement park industry up until the years before World War I. Um, I think it was interesting when I was researching IAPA's history, there was an attempt to form an amusement industry trade association in 1906 that failed because the transportation companies were so dominant that they didn't think of amusement parks as an industry. <laughs> so it took um, you know, around World War One. Uh, you started seeing um, amusement parks get spun off by the transportation company, and people started coming into the industry that viewed it as its own industry. So, you know, World War One was kind of one of those watershed eras where you saw the entrepreneurs coming in to operate amusement parks. Um, the rides took on a greater, um, greater prominence, and. Um, Really, you went into the 20s with you know, what a lot of people consider the first true golden age where you had the advances in technology and the growth in the industry. And that um, you know, drove it through the Depression, World War II, where you, then you started seeing you know, the new era of the theme parks and the big corporations come in. Yeah. Um, really, you know, and, you know, in a few minutes, then leading to the industry we have today. Well, I think, it was, I think it's interesting in, in that history, uh, you said it at the outset, there's always been room for escapism. People have always wanted that. And uh, it, it's been something that hasn't changed. I mean, we're living that today. Tim, I'm going to ask you, uh, you, you've seen the publishing, you've been in it all your life, basically. You've seen the publishing world uh, change. Uh, you were with amusement business during its golden years. And uh, I was certainly a reader of that when I was a young guy in the industry, couldn't wait to, to get my issue. Uh, what, are some of the, what are some of the things that you've seen uh, through those shifts and now uh, where we are today with social media being the dominant force? And my newspaper uh, it, here in Cincinnati is about this big now when I read it in the morning. <laughs> What's some of the things you've run into that you've seen that have changed and but have helped shape the industry too? Well, the media, absolutely. The, the social media, let me start currently. Uh, I think the social media is both a good thing and a bad thing uh, for parks. Uh, I know as a journalist, uh, if, if a park had an accident back in the 90s, let's say, uh, the only way I would ever find out about it is if it was severe enough to be on national news, uh, I would hear about it that night or during the day if uh, the park owner or manager would call us and say, hey, this is what happened today. Uh, so sometimes it, things would go totally un, unnoticed by us in the media. Uh, right now, I mean, if, if somebody falls down in a queue, it's all over social media, so yeah. you know it immediately. Uh, so the 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 accessibility uh, that the public now has in the private world of the theme park industry is 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 quite awesome and also quite scary because a lot of things, uh, as we know, the uh, the non truths 
uh, that are out there that happen. And if somebody wants to uh, wants to really uh, really piss off somebody at a park, they can go ahead and write anything. They don't care if it's true or not. So right. I think that's something uh, that's also dangerous to the parks. But back, uh, you know, back in the good old days, yeah. the, it was, and I'm, I'm glad you, you read me as you were growing up, Dennis. That was nice. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning it. Uh, the, the whole concept, uh, it was so civil in the late 80s uh, when I actually started writing for amusement business. Uh, you, the accessibility uh, was so, so important to, to have, like uh, as a reporter, as a reporter, senior editor on amusement parks and um, theme parks, et cetera, I had great accessibility to the leadership of parks because of who, who I was, the position that I held. Sure. And there's nothing better than sitting down. I remember the first day I walked into Larry Cochran's office at Six Flags and this, this, this dominant man, this, this huge ball-headed guy about eight foot tall came over and shook my hand. And I'm not even trying to be a Texas draw like he was. And immediately I saw, you know, why Six Flags had been so successful, you know, within 10 minutes of sitting down and meeting him. Uh, today with all the, the major corporate parts, it's a lot harder. And I noticed I left the industry in the, at the end of 2003, as far as a reporter. And it was, it was, it was almost impossible to get a sit down with the head of a, uh, of a corporation that owned one of the parks. And most of the corporations put it down to the manager of their individual parks, not to talk to me. Uh, I heard that many times I would, I would call up and they'd say, Oh, hi, Tim. Uh, and I'd say, well, what's going on? And they'd say, well, I painted my office today. And I said, well, yeah, but tell me what's going on. Well, yeah. I, I'm not allowed to talk to you. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, heard, I heard that so many times. And the um, it just was a, uh, I muted my phone, but not my uh, pad. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, Don't fall in know, the water. <laughs> I, oh, I, lots of lots of sharks. But anyway, the uh, the whole concept of the accessibility aspects, um, I think, has been changed, and then that goes on for you know forever. We had a we had a rough time, and through the years, and as amusement business started becoming uh, the industry go, uh, bible again in the late '80s and back into the '90s, like you say, it was a heyday. Um, it, it was it was fun working there, and. Uh, so I think the changes are basically the, like Jim was saying, the, the corporate parks taking over and you didn't have the mom and pops uh, that you could go out and chat with and just have a good old time. And that's, those, that's, those are the big changes. Do you, uh, you, you and I both, uh, and you were much closer to him than I was, but a great friend of mine and a great friend of the industry, our, our friend, uh, Tom Powell, uh, I know you work closely and travel uh, with Tom, and I'm sure you could tell uh, 10 hours of stories, but give us a brief uh, look into the life of Tom Powell. He was just, whenever he walked in the room, the room lit up. It was just fabulous. Yeah, the, the room lit up and we all got free drinks. Uh, <laughs> that was, <laughs> that's, there, you know, there in a thumbnail uh, is what Tom Powell was all about. But Tom was a, a, a fabulous man. He, he brought me into the industry. Uh, he hired me. I, I was working for a, uh, um, a drugstore publication as an associate editor up in New York City um, when, I got, when I got interviewed by Amusement Business. And he, yeah. he put his job on the line and made sure that I was the one that got hired for the managing editor's position at the beginning. But Tom was an old, old school journalist. You know, and uh, you you would expect to watch him wear one of the little green visors that you see in the movies and have a bottle of scotch. Well, he did have a bottle of scotch in his desk drawer, but uh, he, he was just a hard drinking, hard working and a hearty, hearty man. Wonderful heart, heart huge. He knew everybody in the industry. He did. And. When I uh, when I came in to take over the theme park uh, side of things, he 
kind of went back to his first love, and that was the carnival industries, the carnival and the fair industries. And so he covered most of that. I covered most of the theme park stuff. And he, you know, even at the beginning, uh, he, he would get mad at me for um, uh, talking to the PR or to the marketing person. He says, you got to go see the big guy. You got to go see the big guy. And uh, so when I would go to try to see the big guy, a lot of times they wouldn't take my call. And I would, I'd say, well, why? And I would call Tom and I said, Tom, I can't get through to so-and-so. And he'd get on the phone, call the guy. <laughs> And within 10 minutes, that guy would call me back and say, sorry, now Tom gave me your blessing. So uh, we're okay now. Uh, so that was the kind of guy he yeah, was. Yeah, he was great. He was, I, and he loved, he loved the name drop. <laughs> I have to tell you a funny story. When I was president of IAPA three, 30 years ago, uh, I went to my first Gibtown show. It was something the presidents did. We went out, we went to the OABA out in Las Vegas, John Graff and I, and when we got to Gibtown, uh, Tom met us. And I'm, <laughs> I'm in a suit and tie, and uh, they're taking, he's taking me around, introducing me, president of IAP at that time, not chairman. And uh, up, up walks this, uh, this guy, a guy named Oklahoma Red. And um, he said, hey, Oklahoma, come over here. I want to introduce you to somebody. And uh, he comes over, little guy, talk like this. And he says, uh, I said, how? he said, Oklahoma, this is Dennis Spiegel. He blah, blah, blah. And I said, how you doing, Oklahoma? He says, well, uh, ain't been in jail and ain't got no new tattoos this year, so it's a pretty good year so far. I'm doing okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> following this is something you know you couldn't script. So, following uh, Oklahoma Red comes as another lady walking up, and she's kind of in this outfit and a little strange, and her name's Alligator Annie. And he said, "Hey, Alligator, come here. I want to introduce somebody. Same thing. Introduce three dinner." Uh, this Dennis Spiegel, blah, blah, blah. And he says, hey, alligator, show her your nipple rings there. Show Dennis that. And she whips up her top. And I, I'm sitting there. I look over at John Graff and I said, I think I'm going to like it here. <laughs> <laughs> and and for, for the rest of the day, that was, that was kind of our, that was kind of our <laughs> exposures. It was a lot of, he was great. A lot of fun. He could tell uh, a great story. Yeah. And the real excitement at Gibtown town starts when the sun goes down too. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> at the coconut bar, the coconut bar and all the, all the sweets. So they, they were uh, just, uh, they were great. It was. Yeah. Tom was a, uh, uh, was a really a major force, I think in creating uh, the readership that amusement business really had. Yeah. And then once, uh, once amusement business went out of business, uh, he's, he slid over to the OABA and wrote yeah. a column for them online yeah. as well for your publication. Yeah. So he, he, right to the, right to the very end, he was, a, he was a quite a chronicler of the industry. Yeah. He was, we, we miss him. We, we loved him and we miss yeah. him. And he Jim, was the best man at my wedding. So. Well, was he really? <laughs> he, yeah. he certainly was. Yep. Yep. <laughs> What do you mean by that? <laughs> hey, Jim, if you, uh, I'll come to you on that. Uh, if you had to kind of look through the industry, and you've done a phenomenal job. We're going to talk about the uh, uh, the oral history project in a minute. But just some of the people you've come in contact, who would be a couple of the people that you would say, my gosh, they helped me get my start. They put me on the path. They they just changed. Who, who would it be for you? Um. Well, I, I, I'm always grateful for Tim. Um, yeah, we, we've known each other for 30 years now, and yeah. he was the one who really was able to get me writing for on a freelance basis for amusement business and fun world, and um, I think recommended me for the Hall of Fame committee, which I think built up my um, exposure in IAPA. So when they started to the oral history project, they came to me and asked if I'd be interested in overseeing it. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think you know Tim has been a you know great friend over the years, and you know, we've worked on some book projects together. So you know he's been a yeah you know, yeah you know, I would put him at the top. Um, but you know I I you know there's yes it's such a generous industry. I mean there's so many people who um, you know you know are all yeah you know, given that it's a fun industry, people want to help everybody else out. Um, you know I was thinking uh, in in preparing 
some questions and just discussion points for you, for you guys. I was thinking about uh, when we think of who have been some of the most in, influential people. I mean, obviously, Walt Disney, of mm-hmm. course. Okay. And uh, George Millay and Angus Wynn. If you, uh, I, I was looking at some history on the guys, and uh, this is hard to believe. Walt Disney would be today 120. <laughs> Angus Wynn would be 107. <laughs> I remember, and maybe you do, Tim, uh, when they we op- they opened Six Flags. I remember it. <laughs> so what a, what a milestone that was in 1961. Uh, John Allen from the from the uh, vendor uh, manufacturing side. Uh, Schwarzkopf, Anton Schwarzkopf, uh, what he did for the industry over in Europe. Uh, who who would you guys add to that list, uh, Tim? Who would you throw out there? Wow, uh, there were so so many, um, and you know, a couple people that that really put their arms around me and um, helped me get to know the industry it was Spurgeon Richardson. Yeah. Uh, down in uh, Atlanta. Atlanta and then you know he let he finally left the Six Flags organization and became like the head of the visitor and uh visitors bureau of the of we're in the Atlanta state. and you're invited <laughs> that's right uh, I mean so Spurge was a was a big big help to me and then um as far as you know the European uh, Jeffrey Thompson yeah. uh he was also uh the head of Blackpool and Jeffrey was always there for me and you know he would, we would walk through uh, a lot of stories before I even published them, especially about Europe before um, before they went to print. So Jeffrey was very, very knowledgeable and very cordial. And like Jim was saying, uh, I, I didn't find really too many people, too many roadblocks in my search for uh, knowledge about the industry. People were very generous. People loved to talk about their parks. And... Um, one thing we always covered amusement business. We, we weren't a fan publication. We were a business publication. Yes. So we, instead of going out and um, talking about a new roller coaster and they, Oh, it's so big, it's long, it's blah, blah, blah. You know, we talk more about the return on investment, the, the problems they had with the supply chain, getting it built. What are they going to have to do to raise, uh, raise a gate price? The, so those kind people identified, I think, more that they were willing to talk to you about up to a certain point. Uh, and then, uh, then the point, of course, came when everything was so secretive. Uh, they were very, very quiet about it. Uh, and it went more I, from the private into the public. It became more secretive, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and it's a little off topic, but um, I was responsible for amusement business to put together the, uh, the attendance charts every year. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that when that was pitched to me to take over in in '86, I thought, okay, this is going to be fun. All I have to do is call up the park and get the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> that worked maybe two years, uh, and then Disney, when Michael Eisner came in, you know, he was with I think Paramount ahead before he right. came to Disney, Correct. and he he said he lived and died by the numbers every Monday morning when the film. Uh, totals, uh, the grosses came out every Monday morning. And he says, I'm not going to happen. That's not going to happen again with amusement parks. It's the theme parks. So he quit at that particular point talking about attendance figures. And then Six Flags said, well, if Disney's not going to release their numbers, I'm not either. Then Bush and then all the others. And it got down to only one or two mom and pops in the top 40 or 50 would actually give me real attendance figures. And so that's when I had to start, you know, and I'm not going to tell you what, but a major chain um, in the organ or in the universe here, an American based chain, uh, they were always friendly with me, but they would never, never tell me uh, the numbers. But this one particular person every year at the conference convention, uh, IAPA convention, would see me on the floor and go, hey, Tim, shake my hand. How you been? Good, good. And I'd walk away with a piece of paper in my hand with attendance figures. 
I mean, that's you had your own deep throat. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's that's how you know clandestine things became. And uh, so, but with the help of people like you, uh, you know, with your contacts, Dennis, and you know, with Jim, he he knew all a lot of the mom and pop people. I was able to pull together some figures, but 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 again. That just shows again over time mm -hmm. how how things changed and how quiet and hush hush things became. Yeah, it 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 really did change, and we you know we the three of us, particularly you and I, Tim, we lived it. I mean, we we saw it, and I was part of that uh, original small group from the Coney Island group here in Cincinnati. And we shared with Kennywood and Lagoon and and Knobles and mm -hmm. we were all buddies and friends. We'd get together. And I remember we uh, actually, we started a small group of us. Lee Darrow was involved with it. Spurge was involved with it. And we started a little enclave, a meeting of the general managers of more or less the bigger parks that were getting going back in the 70s. And... Um, we would kind of rotate through each guy's city. So we'd go out to see Lee Darrow at World's Fun and we'd all go out for cocktails and drinking and we'd share information and talk about it. And same thing in Cincinnati and Jim Bowie, we'd go see him up in when he was with Marriott. And then John Graff said to us one day, you can't do this. <laughs> he said, what do you mean? We're, we're friends. We've known each other for 20 years. No, you can't do this. Uh, the government will step in. So out of that, that group of small guys, it started out, there were about six of us. Larry Cochran was part of it. Errol McCoy was part of it. Uh, Bill Crandall was part of it. Mike Bartlett, Ed McHale, uh, Bowie. There weren't that many parks at that point in time. Out of that, John said, well, if we're going to do this, we have to do something at IAPA. And that is how the owner's general manager's breakfast evolved. Yeah. It was opened up to the masses, and then we'd have speakers come in and talk. So it went from this small group of guys having cocktails to what? how many people go to that thing now, 2,000 or 1,500 or something like that. Uh, Dennis, please. it's interesting you mention all those people because when I, you know, I've been fortunate to interview most of those for the IAPA Oral History Project. And yeah. what I find fascinating is that environment that you guys grew up in, in terms of you guys were in your 20s and 30s and running major theme parks. And yeah. just that spirit of entrepreneurialism and that youth and enthusiasm that you guys brought to the industry at that time as it was really evolving into something totally different. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, uh, when I when I went down, moved from Cincinnati to build King's Dominion, I was 28 years old. And I think uh, Cochran and uh, McCoy were two years older than me. They maybe had just turned 30. And uh, it was amazing when we would get together. You talk about uh, the spirit and that entrepreneurial drive and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean... We didn't know if we were right or wrong a lot of the times, but we did it. We charged forward, and uh, that was amazing. Yeah, and even um, Disneyland, too, talking to some of the people when Disneyland opened the, in the 50s, you, 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 hear, you think of Disney as this very sophisticated, by-the-book operation. Yeah. And again, the entrepreneurial spirit that existed then, you know, like talking with someone like Bob Gurr, trying to just figure out how to make a turnpike car work, and... Um, Jack Lindquist and you know, trying to figure out how you staff a parade and all of these <laughs> things that are now you know, so much a part of the Disney experience and so flawless, how they were just going by the seat of their pants even there. Well, we all were. Uh, in fact, I've got a letter uh, in, from Gary Walks, which uh, started the King's company. He was he was really the guy who was responsible for taking Coney Island into the new era. King's Island, King's Dominion, Canada's Wonderland. And his mother and father were great friends with Walt Disney. And they went out to the Disney opening. And he gave me a copy, a, a copy of a letter that his mom had written to his sister when they were out there with Walt Disney at Disneyland when it opened and she's describing this park 
which she'd never seen anything like it. And her family had been in the business for 50 years prior to that. And she was going, um, and it's a wonderful letter. But if you remind me, uh, I'll, I'll give you a copy mm. of that, Jim. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a real treasure. Walt Disney takes them to the Beverly Ho Hills Hotel. Here they are from Cincinnati go going out to LA the first time. They go to the Beverly Hills Hotel. They're having dinner. Up to the table comes Red Skelton, <laughs> and Red sits down. He buys their dinner. He loves what they do. The next night, they're with Robert Mitchum, and they're with all these great movie stars at Walt Disney's house. And she's telling all these stories just like, it's wow. nothing, you know, I'm, we met and we were with, and so it's a, and some of the females that were there were, were just phenomenal. But, yeah, those, those were the days, I guess. Those yeah, were yeah, well... Uh, Ed Carroll, uh, when I interviewed him, would tell the story because his father was really big in oh the industry gosh. in the 40s, I'm 50s, 60s. Well. About, um, I guess, you know, while Walt would not go to the Sherman House Expos, I guess Roy Disney would go uh, and take a low profile because, you know, Walt being the visionary, he created these concepts and Roy would have to figure out how to make them work and pay for them. Yeah, pay for them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly. Uh, you mentioned Ed Carroll. Uh, he was great friends with Harry Bat Sr., Ed Carroll Sr., uh, actually uh, Jeffrey Thompson's father, Leonard, who all came to visit me at Kings Island the year we opened. And, uh, you know, these were the, the gurus of the industry. It was amazing. But we're at the Sherman House. Uh, I'm at my first convention, and we're in the down at the Well of the Sea. And on Thursday night, they had this big dance, and we'd been out having some cocktails. And we come back in, and here's these couple of guys out there dancing and going crazy. And I go, who are, who are they? And he goes, that's Harry Bat Sr. and Ed Carroll Sr. <laughs> Ed Carroll Sr. They were about seventy at that time. <laughs> they were out there dancing and having having a great time. So it's always been a, a group of great people like that that uh, have have been in our industry. Hey Jim, tell us, um, take a minute or two and tell us about the oral history of IAPA. How long it's been going on? Mm -hmm. How many are in? And how they're chosen to to come in and uh, and be. Uh, be a part of that. Okay, great. Um, yeah, you know, it, when you talked a little bit earlier about people who influenced me, another person I should have mentioned was Carl Hughes at Kennywood. Oh yeah. And yeah, we that. yeah he, he was a lover of history, so we had some great conversations. And you know, one time I just told him I I, I should bring a tape recorder every time I come and visit you. And uh, he goes, you know, uh, John Graff was saying that to me too the other day. And this was back in the late 90s, and you know, at that time, we, we you know, NAFA teamed up with IAPA to do some oral history interviews. It was a much less formal process. You know, it was audio tapes, um, but even then, we got some people that were fortunate we did. We, you know, we interviewed Jeffrey Thompson, um, Jeffrey's mother, Bob Ott, you know, some really uh, yeah. great people who are no longer with us. Um, and then you know, it went a little bit quiet for a while. And then I think we had two um, you know, catalytic events in 2004 where with the sudden passing of Jeffrey Thompson and Charlie Wood. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Paul Cerf, um, you know, former IAPA chair, a uh, long time at Hershey Park, yeah. Texas. Um, he really pushed the board to really formalize the oral history project. So um, I got this email in fall of 2005 from Sue Mosdale saying, um, you know, we'd like to interview some people at the uh, IAPA Expo. Would you willing be willing to come down and do it? And um, who was I to say no to that? And um, at that time, yeah, first, um, first Expo 2005, we interviewed six people. Um, Ed Carroll was actually the first one I ever did. And there was a Bob Minnick was one and Dick Chance and... Um, uh, yeah, there was uh, a couple others. Um, How you, many you are in the Hall of Fame you, now, Jim? A uh, couple dozen. Um, yeah, we we yeah. So as it's evolved over time, you know, I was I thought this fame, might be a yeah, one and yeah. done thing, and then they invited me back the next year, and it kept going. So we are up to roughly 150 interviews. Um, 150. Wow. Yeah, uh, we have um, wow, that's been great. able to interview a pretty much every living Hall of Fame member. Um, and also every living past chair of IAPA. Yeah. So um, it, it's really this great body of work. It's been a true privilege to be entrusted with it by IAPA. Um, we have uh, 
had edited about 40 of the interviews into you know, kind of mini documentaries um, that you can find on the IAPA website. Uh, and so, you know, I think you know, when we started this, it was more, let's get the people interviewed while we can. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we've done things like um, I went out to California uh, about 10 years ago and got to spend an absolutely amazing afternoon with Marty Scalar and Richard Sherman, along with uh, yeah. a number of other, um, a, n a number of other uh, Disney legends like Exitensio, the guy who, uh, who, who scripted Pirates of the Caribbean and uh -huh. um, the Haunted Mansion, and to hear this 90-year-old man talking, you know, doing the Dead Man Tell No Tales <laughs> on camera was really kind of it's surreal. But then you know, I've been fortunate to go to some of the overseas expos to get some of the members over there. So like uh, yeah. Boo Kintorf, uh, that oh, was great. quite an yeah. experience. So yeah. it's really been one of the highlights of my life to be able to do this. And, it, you know, it's, I think you know, we've really captured such a wonderful body of work. Uh, I should also mention the, my, my Bob Rogers interview, Three Hours. Um, Wow. He was the longest interview I did. Tim was actually the second longest at two hours and 45 minutes. So, <laughs> we, we, we have a lot of great stories, and you know, hopefully you know, we can get more of them out there in future years. Hey, guys, we're getting, as we do typically with the, with the podcast, we're getting questions coming in. So if you see me bouncing around, I'm looking at different monitors and coming in. First one uh, is for you, Tim. It said, this is from an old friend, Jack Yeager. <laughs> Remember Jack, King's Dominion? Yep. Uh, he said, where did Steve Rogers go after AB? He wrote a lot of articles for us when we were at King's Dominion. Did you keep up with him? I, did, I never met Steve. Um, as a matter of fact, he left and I came in to fill his position at that particular time. Uh, it was more of a to fill the body position, not his uh, I, I forget. Even, I think he's managing editor at that time, maybe. Yeah, but I, I came was. in as I came in as managing editor and then moved on to uh, uh, the other stuff. But all I know is I think Steve continued writing, but wasn't in the industry or wasn't for us. So I have no idea where he is. Just kind of gone. Jim, here, here's one for you. Thank you, Tim. Here's one for you. It says, uh, Jim, do you ever think there will be a standalone attractions industry museum? And if you do, what would it feature? Where would it be? Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, you, you do have the National well, Roller Coaster. For those of us watching, we know why we're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I, you do. I mean, that's been a um, great challenge. I mean, you, you have the yeah. National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives now, which has you know, really built a pretty impressive facility out in, in uh, Texas. Texas. Where is that in Texas? I knew. Was it Longview, Texas, which is <laughs> midway between Amarillo and Lubbock? Okay. Um, uh, what is Larson International on their grounds? Yeah, um, with Larson. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, but I know you know, IAPA looked at it when Roy Gillian was president back in the early '90s about you know, the feasibility of IAPA doing a museum. They didn't think it was part of their their mission. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would yeah, I would love to see something like that. Uh, it's just you know, there there are so many museums right now, and you know. A museum is not an easy thing to do. I mean, you have to come up with a revenue stream and a business model and find a place where you could generate traffic. Yeah. Um, you know, what we are doing at NAFA, I mean, we are, I think, building a pretty good archive. We have served as a repository for people looking to uh, unload stuff. So I, um, you know, and Jim, least... you might, you might pitch right now. Uh, <laughs> that's a good idea. Yeah, we, we recently received a very significant donation that uh, is just you know, a, a uh, great thing for us to have. We're very pleased and grateful. What do you think about that, Tim? Well, I'm very bittersweet about you having all my stuff now. Uh, <laughs> it broke my heart when I saw that U-Haul truck pull out of my driveway with all with my entire career in the back end. However, your wife went, woo! <laughs> yeah, I get my room back. Uh, now, the uh, yeah, I, I just want to pitch, too, because, I mean, through the years, um, at Amusement Business, and then on the Hall of Fame Committee, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I constantly heard people, they would call me and say, 
you know, my mom and dad worked at this park or they owned this park or whatever. And when they died, I went down to their basement and I have you know, 10 boxes of this crap. What am I supposed to do with it? I'm just going to yeah. throw it away. Uh, and they didn't see, people didn't really don't see, even if they have one file of, of stuff, of the history of a park uh, or of a, a ride or a manufacturer, mm-hmm. um, I think go to NAPFA, uh, National Amusement Park Historical Association, which Jim is talking about. I searched for probably the last four years of, of my career uh, for somebody to give it to, uh, even though Jim and I were friends and for, you know, 10 years, we talked about uh, trying to get an online archives or an online museum uh, for IAPA and for the industry. Um, I wasn't completely sold on the fact that they should receive it. I, first of all, I said some university should get my archives. And after after talking, I found that the, you know, the NAFA guys are going to take good care of it. They're going to use it and they're going to leave it open for other journalists. And that's, that's, great. that's one, that was my goal for my archives. And I think probably a lot of people who have accumulated a lot of stuff over the years, yeah. um, let's make it available to future fans, future journalists, future chroniclers of the industry so that they can you know, benefit from all the hard work we did accumulating it to start with. And I think that's what NAP is going to do. So, you know, find out where Jim lives send them stuff do <laughs> <laughs> the big dump right uh, yeah, yeah right a uh, couple of more questions came in and incidentally a, a longtime friend and part of the industry mike glennon <laughs> he said hey guys uh please wish larry cochran happy birthday he's 81 today wow. so well, yeah. we'll, we'll all say <laughs> happy birthday larry we miss you and uh you were uh great part of the fabric of the industry for many, many years. You were a, a pillar of the industry. And, you know, you, you speak of Mike Glennon. He is, he's a legend in his own right in the industry, mostly with Six Flags. And then for with, sure. the whole, with the whole debacle down there in Jazzland, uh, what that turned out to be. Uh, yeah. He's got a lot of great stories. Mm. Cochran, other Six Flags people in the industry. and Well, Tim, that leads into the question that just came in. It said, hey, Tim, it said, uh, you've seen hundreds of projects come and go through the years. Which projects, uh, whether operating or not, would you say have uh, really influenced the industry? And which ones would are you surprised that maybe still are not around? A couple of legs on that chair there. <laughs> Wow, uh, that is such a loaded question to start with. Uh, That's from Walter, if you know Walter. So. Uh, I know a lot of Walters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, but I think as as a journalist, one thing that we got constantly, and that you might not even been aware of, Dennis, uh, I would say at least every month I would get one or two people either dropping by the office or calling me and wanting to talk to me about projects that they had in mind. They would have these beautiful books full of pictures. They would have all these stats and all the location. uh, And then they would say, yeah, well, we're going to build this. And I says, well, will you do a story? And basically what they wanted to do is spread the word so that they could get investors. But And I said, well, you know, this is great. You get your investors and then I will do a lot of stories with you. But there were some amazing, uh, amazing uh, potential for parks that never, never came on board. Uh, But as far as I I go back to Disney, I love the California Adventure. Uh, I think that was an homage to the old amusement park. You know, Disney was considered a theme park for so long. Uh, people that owned uh, amusement parks um, were kind of left out in the cold. They said, you know, everybody wants a theme park. I need to I need to create a theme park. Uh, but I think Disney's homage to the amusement park in the Disney California Adventure, I think that gave a lot of amusement park people pride in the fact that, yeah, we do own this old park and, and yeah, we do have the roller coaster and, and all that. So I think that was very important. And then, uh, then you know, Jazzland, which I mentioned earlier, 
I thought that was a great concept. It was just in a bad location. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the whole thing of, you know, with the Zephyr, the roller coaster, they named it after the old Project Train uh, beach uh, coaster, things right. like that. I think uh, uh, that, again, that kind of influenced people, good and bad, saying, well, you got to really think about those those three words, location, 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 before I spend a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, I think it was, I think every attempt at a new ride or at a new park is a quite a good educational instrument for the rest of the industry to follow and pay attention to and study. Yeah. If you, if you take the map of uh, the United States and you lay out all of the regional theme parks and take the destination parks, Florida and California, there's a major, uh, within 250 miles of every major metropolitan uh, market, there's a theme park. And many of those concentric circles overlap. They Some of them get in within 100 miles. Well, take Kings Dominion and Bush Gardens 60 miles away in Williamsburg in, in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, not to mention Orlando where you're <laughs> a half a mile away. But yeah, it's uh, the proliferation has been interesting. I always said the 60s was the... Uh, exploration after Disney. That's when the real entrepreneurs, the winds and people like that started looking at it. 70s really was at that point in time up leading up to today, that great proliferation. That's when we saw all of the parks, a huge yeah. explosion. 80s was more or less the uh, figuring out how to operate them. We were learning how to make money with them in the 80s. As we got into the 90s, that decade, started the consolidation of parks when uh, Six Flags started buying up the Ed Carroll parks and the Kentucky Kingdoms, parks like that. Then as we went into the uh, millennium, uh, it really was the uh, globalization of the parks and that's kind of where we, we remain today. But you take all that and pull it together, it's been a real fast 60 years if you look yeah. at mm -hmm. what was Disney 67 years ago it opened. So it's kind of crazy. Uh, Jim, uh, here's here's one from uh, uh, Gerald. He said, Jim, how does somebody become a member member of NAPA uh, if they want to? What's the process? Uh, you can go to our website, NAPA.org, N-A-P-H-A. Uh, you can yep. join online. Um and uh, yeah, it's we're, memberships open to anybody. Um, you know, anybody who likes amusement parks. Uh, we have a publication, NAFA Chronicle, that comes out four times a year. We do uh, at least one special event recognizing um, a major milestone. So this year, at the end of July, we will be at uh, Coney Island celebrating the centennial of the Wonder Wheel, and then at Lake Compounds uh, doing the first recognition of a 175-year-old amusement park in North America. Wow. So um, it should be a good time. And yeah, our website has all the information you need. Okay, here's here's one for you, Tim. It says, uh, <clears throat> what has been uh, the most influential ride or attraction that you've seen launch during your long career and which you reported on? <laughs> wow. Uh I would I would guess the uh, um, the mega coaster. I don't know. I don't know all these words, mega coaster, and all these other. But 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 things like the top uh, top thrill dragster up at Cedar Point. Do they call those mega coasters? Is that what you or hyper coasters? Hyper -coasters. giga mega. Now they're yeah. mega coasters. And, and that and I think for a while. Every roller coaster that was being built, other than the, the wooden ones that were coming on, uh, had to be, you know, upside down. How many times can I flip these people over? How many times can I invert them? <clears throat> and then as I was getting older, I, I was disliking that concept more and more. Uh, but then, th then thing, yeah, right. And then things like the um, Magnum XL uh, 200 up in Cedar Point. Cedar Point, uh, yeah. They proved that you could have a really great roller coaster that gave you height, speed, and thrills without turning you upside down, without Smooth. inverting. Smoothly. It's, and it was smooth. Yeah. And so I think that coaster and a couple others that came out about the same time that did the same thing without turning you over were taking the best concepts of the old Woodies 
uh, the, the high fast and you know the, even the banked curves and creating a steel coaster that was a lot more smoother. And uh, I, I think more and more people saw you didn't need to twist people and twist them up because you eliminate so many of your guests immediately when you start every with every inversion you add you knock off 10 percent of your people that could ride this thing that's right so, <laughs> yeah you know what so i, I said here's my graph tim if you graph it age speed and this is this is where I start to fall off. <laughs> That's where, where I go. The inversion. Yeah. Inversion. Let me ask you the uh, same thing, uh, Jim. Uh, anything that really jumped out at you that you saw through the years that you said, wow, this is the cats? Well, I mean, I, I was thinking about that as Tim was answering, and I just look at kind of this evolution over my years following the industry. I remember when the Chicago Loop opened at Old Chicago, it's one of the yeah. first corkscrew coasters and you know, being turned upside down, how terrifying that was. And then, yeah, you know, as those dynamics put that in, I remember got more and more sophisticated. And like I said, I think, um, you know, Magnum XL 200 was such a game changer because then it caused people to look at steel roller coasters in a completely different way. Um, and then you get into things, you know, like Spider-Man. I mean, I, that's actually my oral history interviews. When I asked like a favorite rider attraction, that's like the, the most frequently mentioned one. Yeah, Just still. the way they used um, used um, you know, dark ride in that manner. And then you know the um, the, you know, the Harry Potter stuff that uh, Universal has done in recent years, creating you know such an immersive environment uh, that you see now being spun off, even in the smaller parks. Two things jump out to me first one was um the uh back to the future ride when i went down to see that <clears throat> and was still operating parks um i i came out of that and i said this is the first time that disney has ever been out disney mm -hmm. that ride was mm -hmm. off the chart if you remember it i mean we hadn't really seen anything like that and at the same time Disney had just inter introduced, if you remember, the Captain EO with Michael Jackson, which was a six-degree motion-based platform, which was well done, but the screen was about, you know, the size of my wall here in studio. But when we got in Back to the Future and we thought we went down that uh, the mouth of that dinosaur and then went out backwards and upside down, that, that was a mind-blower. And I think the other one was, uh, for me, here in Cincinnati, actually, when Premier Rides built uh, the uh, Outer Limits, Pam? Mm -hmm. Outer Limits. Uh, and it was the first lineal induction motion uh, motor uh, concept. And we got on that thing, and we were launched out at such speed. It was just incredible. In fact, I've told the story where the U.S. Navy came in to look at that ride to see if they could use that system to launch their aircraft carriers, uh, their planes off their aircraft carriers. That was such an uh, such an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing. So, we've we've but, helped contribute to the to the security <laughs> and safety of America. Hey Dennis, you, well, you know on that on that same ride, I maybe we were there together. I don't know, but I remember wearing sunglasses, <clears throat> and when we shot out, both my lenses popped. <laughs> because of the force <laughs> and so i came back with the rim with nothing in them uh that's that's the force in those babies <laughs> that was an amazing ride um sarah incidentally sarah shea she just sent in a note and she said hi guys she said if you could recommend only one book to read and it can't be yours what would it be would this, rec <laughs> would this recommendation be different for a park operator as it would be for a manufacturer. Who would you read? Um, Anything I mean, come to mind? Well, I mean, there's a lot of good general histories. Um, I mean, from an operator's perspective, there's one, you know, the American Amusement Park by Judith Adams that's really dug into, um, uh, dug into kind of the numbers of the industry. Um, another one that, uh, that came out recently the you know the amusement park industry it goes back to the renaissance fairs and does a nice yeah. a nice overview of the 500 year history and then i'd also be remiss if i didn't also recommend you know the book that changed my life you know gary curiosity's great american amusement park yeah sure we all Even have that like 45 years old it was the first <laughs> photo history of the industry and was just yes 
so spectacular to look at. <laughs> Hold that one over here, Tim. <laughs> Oops, I, yeah. uh, I, I hate this pixelation. I can't show my book off. There you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. The one that uh, the one that I think I remember reading when I first came into the industry in the '60s was Mangle's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, the music part, and you know what? I found that recently and just kind of thumbed through it, and it's still amazing. If you want to know where we're going, you've got to know where we're, we've been. Mm -hmm. And you look at this, and some of the things, there's a picture of what they call, <clears throat> you guys will both remember this, at Coney Island, can't remember which park it was, but the flip-flop coaster, and it was a it was a looping coaster in 1909, I think it was. And you go, wait a minute, I thought Inman did that at Magic Mountain when they, <laughs> it was yeah. pretty, pretty crazy. There, there, there aren't a lot of new ideas in the industry. It's just uh, figuring out better ways to execute old ideas. That's hey, great Sarah, Sarah just sent in another note. She said, hey, I just wanted to let you know, show us how old we are. The flight of fear is 25 years mm -hmm. old this year. Whoa! Yeah. Quarter of, quarter of a century. So that's amazing. Uh, well, guys, uh, we've got more questions, and uh, we could go on for an hour. You you guys uh, uh, wanted to get you on and wanted to get you together because I knew it'd be fun. Um, for the viewers out there, pick up Tim's new book. Hold it up again, Tim. It's kind of getting lost with your green screen there a little bit, but. Give us the give us the name again. Okay, it's a it's accumulation. You can't see it there, uh, but it shows a rocket that that yeah. was taken at there you Kate Kennedy. Uh, anyway, the it's a it's a four hundred and fifty uh, picture book of uh, of all my roadside stuff, and I talk yeah. about the giants, uh, roadside giants like the Muffler Men and the big Santa Claus at Santa Claus Land, and then also just fun places like Cadillac Ranch. And it's a, it's all color. It's like a coffee table size book, but it's a soft cover. And it's 450 of my favorite photos that I've taken over the years. Well, and it total, it's total different from all the other books I've ever done. Uh, so this was the most writing I did on this was, it, it, you know, the introduction and the rest of them I let the pictures tell the thousand stories. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I can't wait to get it. It's going to be great. I've read quite a few of your other ones. They've always been fun, interesting, and, and made me laugh. Because <laughs> Noah, <laughs> I think a that's lot a good of the thing. people <laughs> in there. Jim, uh, what do you got coming on? <clears throat> well, my most recently released book was A History of Seabreeze. That came out in 2018. Uh, great park, great story. Um, I just wrapped up a book that will be released next year. It's a, tr a history of a attraction a lot of us know and love. Uh, so we're not ready to publicly reveal that yet, but you'll know when it, uh, it's announced. Okay. Well, you're... Ooh, mystery. Mystery. Yeah. Keep <laughs> uh, <laughs> guessing. Yeah. Bernard Campbell just sent a note. And he said, hey, he said, hey, Dennis, bring Jim and Tim back for part two. What a very enjoyable conversation. <laughs> so, so Love to um, do. Yeah. we can yeah, do that. We'll, uh, you know what we ought to do? We ought to get through the season, see how things go. We, as I said at the top of the hour, we're at a great point. I uh, think people are coming back in droves and uh, parks are packed. And hopefully we get the people, the employees to be able to serve them and the restrictions on capacities are lifted. And then at the end of the season, maybe uh, as we move into 2022, uh, I would like to invite you two back to talk about more and we'll uh, maybe we'll get some scripted points of, of topics that we want to cover and we'll ask uh, people to send in some stuff and we can do that. How's that? That'd be great. I, I think that's great, Dennis. I, I like the whole idea of, of the discussion about the history and the stories through the years. Uh, yeah. I know so many people are so involved in what they're doing today. They, they really don't, they don't like, Really, they don't like to reminisce, uh, but I know Jim and I do, yeah. <laughs> and it's <clears throat> and, yeah, and it's it's fun just to chit chat. It, it puts the it puts a face to the the amusement park industry mm -hmm. instead of just and just verbiage. I mean, the faces and fun and whimsy through the years. After all, you know, it's 
It's like you've got there in your neon sign, I'm for fun. And so many people forget that amusement parks are supposed to be fun. And I think, especially the people who run them. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, we, the three of us can attest to that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, guys, thank you. Stay with me just a second. Let me introduce our next guest. I did, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned at the top, but uh, we have, uh, a good longtime friend of mine coming on, uh, Jim Davis, uh, creator of Garfield. He created Garfield back in 1978. Uh, and uh, Jim is just truly one of the great guys uh, that I've met who's uh, come to our industries, been to our shows. Uh, never forget, very quickly, he and I were, uh, <clears throat> we were at IAPA. And uh, a new vendor had this big wall where uh, you could draw something on a table and the vision came up on the wall. And uh, uh, Jim, always low-key, not a recognizable guy, but Garfield, of course, was, you know, everybody knows Garfield. And he walked up to the set and he started drawing. He took the stylo and stylus and he started drawing and the guys who are running the booth are kind of watching everything and he starts drawing Garfield and all of this thing morphs into Garfield <laughs> and people start coming around the booth for miles over oh, wow. to see this thing and uh, it was just amazing and the guy who's running the booth looked over at me and went and I went <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's him. <laughs> He's and the other thing was, he and I went to <clears throat> we went to China IAPA show, and uh, cats are, as you know, revered in China, uh, loved. And uh, we would go out, and I would introduce Jim to people, and he would draw something on a napkin or the back of a paper sack. He'd do a Garfield, and you would have thought you had given them a bar of gold. I mean, they really tread. Girls are crying. Guys, are crying. <laughs> I should have been a cartoonist. <laughs> yeah, right. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> Hello, Kitty. So, mm-hmm. thanks very much, guys, for that. Um, uh, as always, when we when we close, uh, first of all, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jim, for for being here. It was really fun. Love mm-hmm. to get you back. Uh, and as as I can see, and you can't. Uh, questions are still coming in here so we talked about fun if we uh if we don't have fun how can we sell fun i've always said that uh uh we're not here for a long time we're here for a good time and uh, we learn that more every day and uh we we really do work and play in a great industry we don't put smoke in the skies and we don't contaminate the streams and the waterways what we really do and you guys know it is we put smiles on people's faces and we give them memories that last a lifetime so doesn't get any better than that so tim jim thank you so much for being with us thank you every every watch out tim there's another (laughs) man you went to a new place real quick. <laughs> <laughs> he crawled out of the lake. <laughs> Where he, yeah, where'd he come from? So thanks a lot, guys, and thanks yeah, to all of our viewers. Thanks. And uh, as always, you can uh, you can find this uh, uh, top uh, episode on uh, YouTube. And uh, please uh, tune in for Jim Davis. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Dennis. Bye. 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 Good to be with you.